We live, in, we live in a time of financial crisis, don't we? Oh, you had to remind us, you're saying. We do, it's, it's, it's a common thing, if we can have the first image on screen, just to see red lines pointing down the way, flashing across our TV screens, isn't it? We see things like that. We hear stories of traders like Bob Diamond and others fixing rates in order to maintain bonuses, etc., Uh, We see the Eurozone in crisis where governments spending way more than they actually have and then borrowing way more than they can actually replay. An oversimplification, of course. And I had to laugh when I came across this little cartoon as well. That's a a financial advisor sitting at his desk with banking and brokerage collapsed behind him. and, and, And it says in the little bubble, let me get this straight, you want to offer us financial advice? Now, not all banks and not all financiers are in this difficult position. They're not all lacking the integrity of people like Bob Diamond and others like him. Nevertheless, the situation has left a people, perhaps not just only a nation, but a world trembling a little bit with with insecurity. And, and, And the question is, why is that? Well, I think I would argue that one of the reasons why we've seen a little bit of a wobble in terms of our, the security that we have in, in our lives is because we bank, forgive the pun, so much on financial stability. That we put our hope and our trust and our security and even our happiness in money. The extent of our bank account, even in a wider sense, the health of our economy. What is it that makes even bankers who are in the top 1% of earners, even in a global pay scale, break law in order to try and make more money and not miss out on bonuses and the like? It's just another example of a love of money and finding security and hope and trust in money. People look to money for happiness and security instead of God. We don't just see this in this financial sector. I mean, if you go into the next slide, here's a lady called Jessica Alba, who's a Hollywood star. Star. She's not really been in that many good films. Um, Don't tell her I said that. Um, She said this. This is really interesting. Uh, On a review of her life, an interview of what her life has been like, she said, making lots of money for me has made me happy. No one else has helped me. I've done this all myself on my own terms. And my dad has also turned out his real estate business round, and my, and my brother's doing well, so we've all come up in the world. I enjoy the freedom of traveling, not having to worry about paying the rent or buying groceries. When asked even about the influence of the Bible and her upbringing, she said, well, you know, I thought it was a nice guide. But it certainly wasn't how I was going to live my life. She's another example of the kind of, pers- the kind of people who put their trust in wealth and who think money buys them happiness, gives them freedom. And it's not just Hollywood celebrities that think that. We can all do that in various respects. The people of our city, I would argue, are pursuing this God of money. 
What does the Bible have to say to those who put their trust in money and finances and seek security and happiness in those things rather than God? Well, that's what we're going to see from Isaiah 23 and 24 today. So if you'd like to turn there with me, we'll read it together. And before we read, let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you for your word again, that it's living and active, that it gives light to the eyes and makes wise the simple. And most of all, it shows us Christ, shows us who he is and what he has done to rescue us from our sin. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Isaiah so far, we have had a whole series of prophecies against certain nations and cities. This is the last of those in the list. This is against Tyre, and here's where we read from 23 verse 1. An oracle concerning Tyre. Wail, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed and left without house or harbor. From the land of Cyprus, word has come to them. Be silent, you people of the island, and you merchants of Sidon, whom the seafarers have enriched. On the great waters came the grain of Shehor, the harvest of the Nile was the revenue of Tyre. And she became the marketplace of the nations. Be ashamed, O Sidon, and you, O fortress of the sea, for the sea has spoken. I have neither been in labor nor given birth. I have neither reared sons nor brought up daughters. And when word comes to Egypt, they will be in anguish at the report from Tyre. Cross over to Tarshish. Wail, you people of the island. Is this your city of revelry? The old old city whose feet have taken her to settle in far off lands who planned this against Tyre the bestower of crowns whose merchants are princes whose traders are renowned in the earth the Lord Almighty planned it to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned on the earth Tell your land as along the Nile, O daughter of Tarshish, for you no longer have a harbor. The Lord has stretched out his hand over the sea and made its kingdoms tremble. He has given an order concerning Phoenicia that her fortresses be destroyed. He said, no more of your reveling, O virgin daughter of Sidon, now crushed. Up, cross over to Cyprus. Even there you will find no rest. Look at the land of the Babylonians, this people that is now of no account. The Assyrians have made it a place for desert creatures. They raised up their siege towers. They stripped its fortresses bare and turned it into a ruin. Well, you ships of Tarshish, your fortresses destroyed. At that time, Tyre will be forgotten for 70 years, the span of a king's life. But at the end of these 70 years, it will happen to Tyre as in the song of the prostitute. Take up a harp, walk through the city, O prostitute forgotten. Play the harp well, sing many a song so that you will be remembered. At the end of 70 years, the Lord will deal with Tyre. She will return to her hire as a prostitute and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Yet her profit and earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her profits will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothes. 
and see. The Lord is going to lay waste the earth and devastate it. He will ruin its face and scatter its inhabitants. It will be the same for priest as for people, for master as for servant, for mistress as for maid, for seller as for buyer, for borrower as for lender, for debtor as for creditor. The earth will be completely laid waste and totally plundered. The Lord has spoken this word. The earth dries up and withers. The world languishes and withers. The exalted of the earth languish. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. Therefore earth's inhabitants are burned up and very few are left. The new wine dries up and the vine withers. All the merrymakers groan. The gaiety of tambourines is stilled. The noise of the revelers is stopped. The joyful harp is silent. No longer do they drink wine with a song. The beer is bitter to its drinkers. The ruined city lies desolate. The entrance to every house barred. In the streets they cry out for wine. All joy turns to gloom. All gaiety is banished from the earth. The city is left in ruins. Its gate is battered to pieces. So will it be on the earth and among the nations. As when an olive tree is beaten. Or as when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. They raise their voices. They shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore in the east give glory to the Lord. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, in the islands of the sea. From the ends of the earth we hear singing. Glory to the righteous one. But I said, I waste away. I waste away. Woe to me, the treacherous betray, with treachery the treacherous betray. Terror and pit and snare await you, O people of the earth. Whoever flees at the sound of terror will fall into a pit. Whoever climbs out of the pit will be caught in the snare. The floodgates of heaven are opened. The foundations of the earth shake. The earth is broken up. The earth is split asunder. The earth is thoroughly shaken. The earth reels like a drunkard. It sways like a hut in the wind. So heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls never to rise again. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heavens above and, in, and the kings on the earth below. They will be herded together like prisoners bound in a dungeon. They will be shut up in prison and be punished after many days. The moon will be abashed, the sun ashamed, for the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders gloriously. I almost feel like I need to be wearing a black suit and a black tie. It's weighty, isn't it? 
I'm going to just deal with these two chapters with one point each, okay? So in the first instance, we're going to look at chapter 23. Proud idolaters are humbled by a hand. Uh, When we see verses 1 to 7, you have this picture of Tyre. And it's absolutely desolated. It's flattened, isn't it? That's why we have in verse 1, look with me, whale. Whale, O ships of Tarshish, for Tyre is destroyed and left without house or harbor. Tyre is completely devastated here to the point that we see three little things happen. Repossession, liquidation, consternation. Repossession. You have no home. You have no home. Imagine for a second that you leave Charlotte Chapel this morning after the service and you drive down your road to find that your home has not only been repossessed, but it has been bulldozed and flattened. And as well as that, your bank accounts have not only been frozen, they've been emptied. And your insurers have gone bankrupt. Okay? You're left with nothing, in other words. And I mean nothing. That's what's happened to Tyre. That's why the ships are wailing. Repossession. Liquidation. You have no home. You have no harbor. You have no harbor. Tyre was a commercial center in its day, equivalent to Wall Street in New York or the city in London. The harvest of the Nile, as verse 3 says, was the revenue of Tyre. In other words, this richest of produce from the most fertile place, arguably, on earth, from the Nile and its branches. It was all traded through Tyre. We'll sell it for you. Fine. Tarshish, on the southern tip of Spain, in other words, at the far end of the Mediterranean from where Tyre was, was famous for its metals. And it would ship and cargo its metals to Tarshish, who would say, we'll fashion it for you into something pretty and sell it for a gross profit. That's what they did. But they have no harbor. Their businesses, in other words, have been liquidated. That's what we're supposed to see. They've nowhere to go. These ships have nowhere to offload their cargo. All they can do is cry. You ever seen a ship cry? No. It's imagery, isn't it? But it's a powerful image. A ship wailing because it doesn't have anyone anywhere to set down, anywhere to offload its cargo or load cargo. And then consternation. Well, this is global consternation, really. People have no idea what's going on. They're astonished at this. Tyre was a place that had managed to fend off two sieges from great empires in the past. I'm not going to go into all the history just now because we just don't have time. But with that came something of a pride. It was almost on a little rocky outcrop from the sea. They just built up their defenses and they said, we are impregnable. No one can take us. They laid siege to us for 12 years and then went away home. They gave up. They had an idea that they were impregnable. People thought that they would stand forever. Not only as a financial center, but just with strength in itself. And there's consternation across the Mediterranean because of this, even across the world. Shock. Do you remember where you were when the Twin Towers were hit at 9-11? I do. Uh, I was in a swimming pool, which was rather cold, uh, in a place called Fingerola in southern Spain. And I was on holiday, and I still remember this blonde-haired woman coming and sitting down on one of the sun loungers at the side of the pool, just saying, 
one of the towers, the twin towers, has been hit with a plane. I was like, no, that's that's not good. That's not good. And then brother-in-law came down, said the same. We went up and turned on the TV just at the point of the second plane being hit. And and I still remember the newsreaders just they were talking away, da 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 da. Oh, this is this. What's going on? Da 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 da. And then all of a sudden, the second plane hits, and it's. People were just dumbfounded. I was dumbfounded. Newsreaders were dumbfounded. I think the world was shocked. This symbolic center, not only of a financial uh, district, but pretty much symbolic of global marketplace, was gone. It fell. Nobody knew what to say. And I think that's something of what people were feeling at the time of Tyre's destruction. But why this consternation? Why this struggle with this? Well, I think because it shows that the things that we think are secure and steady and firm forever are actually insecure and vulnerable when it comes to God's activity. People are asking, how could this happen? It it seemed so permanent like a fortress as a trading center. And one of the reasons also, I think, for their astonishment was that so many people had so much to lose with the fall of a place like Tyre. I think that's why you get the question in verse 8. Look with me. Who planned this against Tyre? There's a bit of indignation in there, isn't there? How dare this person? Who did this? We want to find out who did it and call them to account. Well, verse 8, verse 9 tells us who did it. The Lord Almighty planned it. The Lord Almighty planned it. For two reasons. This is the next point. To put man in his place. And to stop man's disgrace. To put man in his place. Because of his wealth. No, there's no intrinsic connection between wealth and sinfulness. Though often, even as Jesus mentioned, those things do sometimes often actually go hand in hand. But this judgment is not carried out because of Tyre's wealth, but because of Tyre's pride. Verse 9 says, to bring low the pride of all glory and to humble all who are renowned in the earth. The people, because they had so put their trust in their money and even in themselves, had the kind of, had an illusion of self-sufficiency. They had the kind of mentality, I suppose, which said, we don't need God We can be happy on our own. God is essentially unnecessary and irrelevant to us. But God judges them and teaches them how puny and passing human greatness is. They looked upon, as verse 8 says, Tyre as being the bestower of crowns. So Tyre was a kingmaker. Well, no, that was God's prerogative. Well, their merchants are princes. They're going to be kings. And their traders are renowned. The word renowned there is actually glorious. They are glorious in earth. Well, God says, I will not give my glory to another. And he opposes prideful people who think themselves independent of him. And opposes it not just because it denies him, but simply because they're called, their statement is false. And as long as men and women and children are looking to the so-called glorious people of this earth, then they may not 
and probably will not look to the all-glorious Lord of heaven and earth. So God does this work on Tyre to put man in his place to deal with their pride and also to stop the disgrace. See verse 12? No more of your revelry. No more of your joyful songs as you indulge in sinful things. And what we see here is that in Tyre, they have a living affection for dying things. They have a living affection and a love for the things that will not last and will not do them any good in the end. All the while completely ignorant of the fact that they are, whether they like it or not, answerable and accountable to the Lord Almighty, the God of heaven and earth. How did God bring about this judgment? See verse 11. The Lord has what? Stretched out his hand. Lift up your hand like that. Lift up your hand like that for a sec. Go like that. Stretch it. That was easy, wasn't it? It's as easy as that for God to judge the nations. It's anthropomorphic language. It's a human illustration to teach us something that is just inconceivable to our brains. That God could do that simply by stretching out his hand. To humble man, that's all he needs to do. And the reason why he does it is because he hates sin. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong, as Habakkuk 1.13 tells us. He cannot tolerate sin, and that's what this pride is. And here we see there is no escape. There is no escape for those who are facing such judgment. In verse 12, we see it's pointless fleeing to other places like Cyprus. You'll find no rest there. It's pointless thinking that you can withstand this judgment. And he calls on the people to look at Babylon, this place that was once you know, the London, the New York, the Hong Kong of its day, it was, it was huge. It looked impregnable. Gone. Mightier than you. More indestructible than you. And it's gone. It's a wasteland full of, with more wild beasts than people. It's heavy, isn't it? Is there any hope in this? Is there any hope at all? Oh yes, look at verses 15 to 18. Here we see a patient, the patience of God who desires repentance. Here's where we see Tyre's second chance in verses 15 to 18 just gives us this longer term sketch of the prospects for Tyre that after 70 years, actually by God's doing, where it says the Lord will visit Tyre, as verse 17 says, some rebuilding will take place. Tyre's going to There's going to be something, a green shoot that's going to pitch up. But the big question I think that's hanging over this is, is will Tyre learn her lesson? Or will she return to her old ways? She's been judged. She's aware of this. Will she change? What does verse 17 tell us? She will return to her hire as a prostitute. In other words, she'll have no scruples when it comes to making money, even post-judgment. And will ply her trade with all the kingdoms of the earth. She does not learn her lesson. 
She does not know that even under God's sovereignty, her riches will be used, not allowed for her to hoard as a city, but even to help the Lord's people when they return from exile. Little do they know that God and his sovereignty controls how much they have and how much of it is distributed. They don't know that wealth is actually a gift from God to be used for his glory and not for our own. So it's not about our own personal happiness. It's not about our own personal freedom. Jessica Alba is wrong. People who live like her in pursuit of those things, the Bible says, are wrong. And yet we can do these things, can't we? Even when we know a second chance, a third chance, when God, who stays his full and final judgment, which we'll come to in Isaiah 24, stays his hand every day, giving us another chance to turn to him and say sorry for our idolatry, for looking to other people, other things, other small g gods for meaning, for significance, for security, and for happiness rather than him. Every day is a gift from him. And what we see in Isaiah 23 in microcosm with Tyre in Isaiah 24 is just broadens out to cover the whole earth in Isaiah 24. So 23 is almost like a tremor. And 24 is like an earthquake that, 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 dis, that just makes the Richter scale explode. Look with me at it and see this. God's glory seen in the judgment of the world. The earth is laid waste in verses 1 to 13. And we see again that God judges the earth. Where Tyre's judgment was localized, this judgment is on a global scale. And, and it's no respecter of persons. Social position, level of income, religious titles mean nothing on that day. Nothing. For those who are not of the people of God, it doesn't matter who you are, what kind of reputation you've got, how much money you've got in a bank account, what kind of empire you have built. doesn't even matter how much you give to charity. It will all mean nothing. What is the reason, again, for this destruction? Well, chapter, verses 5 to 13 tell us the curse consumes the earth. The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse consumes the earth. Its people must bear their guilt. See what it comes down to? Human sin. Our wrongdoing, our violation of God's law. Our sinful and wayward rebellion, our turning from him, our rejection of him, and turning to our small g gods, even if that is ourselves. No human being in, on this planet is autonomous or independent. We're all entirely dependent upon God for every red blood cell that courses through your veins and for every molecule of O2 that you inhale every second or two. We are made by God. 
And he has ownership of us, whether we acknowledge that or not. And we were made by God, according to his good design, to be good stewards of his creation and good friends with him. But we disobeyed him in rebellion and reversed the whole thing, living by self-rules, breaking his commands. We're lawbreakers who deserve to have the book thrown at us. And when God's judgment comes, you see what happens because of sin. You see what happens in this text. Across the face of the earth, the merrymaking that people enjoy just now in their sinful rebellion stops. Laughter gives way to groaning. The things that used to taste good taste bitter. The tambourines are silenced. And yet there is a song emerges. Did you see that? In verses 13 to 16. As all the merrymaking is stopped. As the tambourines and the dancing is stopped. There's a song. The earth is laid waste but there is a song. Someone has survived, in other words. Who? Why? There is a singing people, raising voices, shouting for joy, declaring God's majesty, his name, his glory. So it will be on the earth and among the nations as when the olive tree is beaten or when gleanings are left after the grape harvest. So after judgment, there is a remnant left untouched by the devastation. Untouched from, by this judgment. And from east to west, all over the earth, there are people who haven't trusted in money for happiness and security or haven't trusted in anything else for happiness or security, but have trusted in God and worshipped him alone. Him alone. They're the ones who will be happy They're the ones who will sing with great joy forever in his presence. They raise their voices, shout for joy. From the west they acclaim the Lord's majesty. Therefore in the east, give glory to the Lord. Exalt, lift up the name of the Lord for all that that name represents. Exalt the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. In the islands of the sea, from the ends of the earth, we hear the singing. What's the song? Glory to the righteous one. Glory. He has just laid waste to the face of the earth. Glory? To this enthroned king. And Isaiah pictures all these things that were worshipped in those days, humbled and says, even in verse 23, the sun and the moon were worshipped. The moon will be abashed The sun ashamed. Do you see what that's saying? It's as if the sun is lining up next to the Lord Almighty. And we know how the sun shines with all its brilliance. You can't look at it. You're not supposed to look at it. And the sun is like, oh, I'm I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm so ashamed. Light? This is not even light compared to this. The glory and the majesty of the Lord Almighty in all of his radiance. The sun is ashamed, embarrassed. By its light, 
we know nothing brighter. For the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before its elders. In other words, including God's people. They'll be there. Before its elders, what's the word? Gloriously. Gloriously. That God is glorious even in this. That despite our sinfulness, despite the fact that we trust in other things and cling to other things for our safety and security and actually we, with our affections, love these other things. For those who put their faith and trust in Christ, having repented of their sin and turned from those things, there will be glory to await them. So that you need not wail like the ships, but so that you can truly sing like the saved. It's a glorious picture. What a thought, what a thing to look forward to for those of us who have put our faith and trust in our Lord Jesus Christ. It makes our salvation sweeter. Does it not to recognize what we have been saved from? That judgment that will not touch us. It's incredible. But Isaiah doesn't let us rest in that, does he? No, he says there is a warning for today that is still to come. That terror and pit and snare await those who do not look to God for forgiveness for their sin. In other words, it is impossible to escape. Do you see verse 18? I was heartbroken when I read this in my study. Whoever flees at the sound of terror, so you're going to flee, you think you escape, you're going to fall into a pit. And even if you get out of the pit, you're going to be caught in a snare. That's dreadful. And this day will come without warning. Like a burglar would come. Don't announce their arrival. It just comes. And it will come without escape. Like labor pains. And a pregnant woman. And in verses 21 to 22, we read those sober words. In that day, the Lord will punish the powers in the heaven above and the kings on the earth below. In other words, there is nothing between heaven and earth that is going to escape this. They will be herded together like prisoners in a dungeon. And here, here, here's striking imagery of our earth. (laughs) The earth that cannot bear the weight of our sin. You see in verses 19 to 21, the earth shakes, it breaks, it reels, it sways. Verse 20, the second part says, So heavy, so heavy upon it is the guilt of its rebellion that it falls. It falls. Never to rise again. The guilt of the rebellion of its people is the cause of the curse and the reason for judgment. And I hear an objection come in often at this stage in in a conversation. How can God be so glorious when he judges like this? How can people sing his praises when he's just laid waste of the earth? Well, because God's salvation comes through judgment. And God is 
and by no means less glorious because of the way that he has chosen to deal with the sin of the world. We expect justice in every realm, don't we? We expect justice for those who break the law. We wouldn't have lawlessness in our civilized society, would we? But the reality of judgment should keep us from thinking about God as some kind of sentimental old granddad who's just going to give us sweets and do what we, you know, just do what we want to do. Yeah, you can go play in that fire. You're all right. I, I clearly have pictures of my granddad in my head at this point. He's not just some kind of sentimental old figure who just lets things go. That, the reality of judgment should write that for us. But the reality of salvation, so the reality of the people who are singing the song in the midst of the devastation should likewise keep us from thinking God is some kind of terrifying, vengeful judge. Like he's just, oh, he's just lost his temper and taken it out on people. Far from it. Far from it from a God who is exquisitely patient. But it's this reality of his terrifying judgment that's meant to send us fleeing to him. Knowing that those who flee to him will be saved and that those who do not flee to him will be judged. God's salvation always comes to us through judgment. And the earth will split and break because it cannot bear the weight of our sin. But the good news is someone has. Jesus Christ has and was able to bear the weight of that judgment and the weight of the guilt of our sin, of our rebellion. And he is the one in whom we see that God's salvation, that God is glorified in salvation through judgment wonderfully. Because salvation for believers of all ages is made possible by the judgment that falls on Jesus Christ at the cross. Galatians 3.13, as we've been thinking about in our evening series, says Christ redeemed us from this curse. This curse that the earth cannot bear is weighed down by, swayed by, and split by. Christ redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse of us. So identified was he with our curse and with the punishment that was due to us that he bears it on the cross and dies and satisfies the wrath of God and bears it away so that when he rises from the dead three days later, he rises in triumph. I bore it. That wrath, that just punishment has been spent, which means that all who trust in me will never be put to shame. All who trust in me will never be condemned, but will have life eternal in my name. He took our punishment on himself, broke the curse of our covenant-breaking sinfulness, and that cross, that climactic expression of the glory of God in salvation through judgment is a turning point for all people. He truly is our saviour because he saved us from that judgment. So really we have two options at the end of this sermon. 
And I want to ask you this question. Will you wail with the ships or will you sing with the sea? Will you wail with the ships knowing that everything that you put your hope and trust in will one day be gone? You'll have nothing to face except judgment. Or will you sing with the saved? Will you, despite that judgment, stand strong in judgment and sing praises to the King of glory? in whose presence you will live forever. We can trust in self and wealth and any other small g God if we like, but the Bible says it plainly, and I push it as far as I can push it. Terror and pit and snare await you. And wailing awaits but with those who are saved, joy and heaven and glory await. If you're here today, you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. You know, there are a whole host of things in our lives that can make us feel happy and secure, and Christians by no means have got it made. We can sometimes, even by believe, even as we believe in Jesus Christ, have our hope in some things. We like to cling tightly to some things because we think that we... We need these things for our meaning and significance. So we've not got it made. But we have seen our sin and trust in Christ. And that's the encouragement for you to do today. Will you put your hope and trust in these other things that in the end will be laid waste? Or will you put your hope in the imperishable things of the Lord Jesus Christ? What difference might it make to you at the news of Isaiah 23 and 24 of God's judgment when it comes to deciding which one of these to choose, where with the ships or sing with the saved. I find it quite astonishing to reflect that even a change in weather has seemingly has more effect on people's summer plans than the news of God's judgment. People who are thinking, oh, I'm going to go up north for my holidays this summer, they're like, stuff that, I'm going to Mallorca. They're going somewhere hot. If news of something as simple and meaningless as bad weather can so make you change your plans, will not news of something so colossally important not make you think about where you will, how you will live your life and where you will spend eternity? Your invitation while you still have breath, while you still have this this day with God and his patience granting it to you, is to turn from your sin, confessing your dependence on these things and turn to Jesus Christ in faith, believing in him, that when he died on the cross, as he said, he paid the price for your sin, he did so. And that as he rose from the dead, declaring, as I live, you also shall live, he did so. And that's a promise that is yours. That if you believe in him, you will be saved and spared that judgment I pray you will today and do not leave it for those of us who are believers this reminder of the judgment that awaits those who do not put their faith and trust in Christ should stimulate many different responses in us we should as John Piper has said use your money in such a way that shows that money is not your treasure Christ is use your possessions 
to show that possessions are not your treasure, Christ is. Use the gifts that God has given you to show that those gifts are not your treasure, Christ is. Recognizing, of course, money, these things I mentioned at the start, they have a rightful place in God's creation. But let's not allow it to corrupt our integrity, to magnify our self-absorption or distract us from what we are called to do as Christians, to look to God for our significance and our identity and our security and not our bank balances. It was Augustine who said, nothing has contributed more powerfully to wean me from all that held me down to earth than the thought constantly dwelt upon of death and the last judgment. May it stir in us that response. That we may use everything that we have for God's glory and not our own. And lastly, of course, let the reality of coming judgment cause you to be willing to risk everything in urgency to tell people the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not to hoard up our time or our money or anything else for ourselves, but recognizing the urgency, speak out. Tell others. Warn others. Who cares about your reputation? Who cares about what people might think of us when so great a judgment is hanging over them? Let it call us to be bold. Because in you, in the church, God has set this hope. And through us, this hope spreads. Let's pray together.